What role does love play in all of this? And what does growth look like when we don't have the force of love behind it? Yeah, well, um, I, I look at it from the idea of love is all you need. Love is, is the opposite of, of fear. And so there's an ability to learn, there's ability to be open even when we close down and we can see we're closing down on how to open it. Love mm -hmm. has everything to do with it. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg. I'm Lily Cushman, and I produce this podcast. And we're continuing today with our third installment of our mental health series. This is something that kind of originally came out of May's Mental Health Awareness Month in the US, but something we have wanted to do for some time to really explore the intersection of spiritual practice, Buddhist philosophy, all of these amazing tools in this community, in this world, and how they apply to mental health. A part of this series is also destigmatizing mental health and providing more education on the subject, both for ourselves, for our community, our children. There's such an overwhelming mental health crisis in the US, in the world, much of which was brought to greater extremes through the pandemic. And so Sharon is sitting down to talk to a whole variety of folks, some of whom are mental health care advocates, some of whom are spiritual teachers who they themselves have gone through a lot of transformation with mental health. So it's a, a whole broad conversation that we're having here on the podcast. And today's episode is the third such episode, and it features one of Sharon's longtime friends and colleagues, George T. Mumford. If you don't know George's work, he's probably best known as Phil Jackson's secret weapon to winning eight NBA championships. He's the author of The Mindful Athlete, and he's a leading expert in sports psychology and performance. He's got a brand new book out, which came out just this year in 2023, called Unlocked. Embrace your greatness, find the flow, discover success. And George is someone who is deeply studied in Buddhism and has this talent for being able to translate that to just everyday vernacular. So George felt like a really nice addition to the mental health series because he offers such a unique perspective. Firstly, in the teaching experience that he has with just top level athletes, but in that his coaching approach which has a lot of incredible nuggets in it about how to work with a growth mindset and how to work with failure, how to find flow states. 
And George is one of those people who is able to be incredibly vulnerable and transparent. He shares a lot in this conversation about his own mental health journey and his journey working through addiction and transforming roadblocks into stepping stones, as he calls it. Also, the role of love in our growth and the ways that we approach our mental health challenges. And the conversation ends with George leading an awareness meditation. So before we get into the episode, a couple of announcements for you. The first is just to remind you that as part of this series, we are compiling a list of mental health resources for you. So please check our show notes. There's great links there. We're adding more with each episode. Just a lot of different resources for treatment, for Buddhist psychology, all kinds of good stuff. We'd also love to hear from you if there are any topic suggestions or questions you have about mental health that feel related to this series. You can shoot us an email to admin at SharonSalzberg.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at SharonSalzberg.com. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. George Bumford and Sharon Salzberg. So I want to say hello to George Mumford, one of my favorite people in the universe. Hey, George. Hi, Sharon. It's great to be here. Great to be with you. Where are you recording from? I'm recording from Winthrop, Massachusetts, right next to Logan Airport. It borders East Boston and Revere, I believe. Okay, well, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you here. We haven't been together in a while, so I'm really happy we have this time today. And I know you've been traveling and spreading the word about your brand new book. So big congratulations about that. Thank you. Yeah, it's interesting. People ask me, are you excited about the book? And I said, yeah, I am, but I'm excited every day. (laughs) 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 Because I I have this philosophy that you're now and never. So uh, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like, it's like Mudita joy practice. Yeah. Really. So I want to spend some time talking about the book for sure, but I also want to mention that today's episode is part of our mental health series that we're doing here on the podcast. We're looking at the many ways that spiritual practice can support mental health and also speaking about these topics as a way to destigmatize them. I know that mental health is part of your coaching and teaching, and maybe the place to start is hearing about your journey with mental health and how you came to Buddhist teachings in your journey? Yes. How I came to Buddhist practice actually was talking about mental health. I was addicted to pain meds, then, uh, you know, then to illegal drugs or substances. And, of course, I was crazy when I was, you know, if you keep doing the same thing and expecting different results, you know, I was definitely crazy. So when I stopped using, I became aware of the fact that I had chronic pain and I could not, uh, I could not uh, deal with that 
through using the medicines. Uh, so I could use some of it, but I had to find another way. And actually part of my ability to develop a process that allowed me to take time off of work and then go into a, a rehab. I was working with a therapist and the therapist and I mm-hmm. talked about that and we came up with a strategy of not only uh, how to get into re- to rehab, but once I came out of rehab, uh, setting me up with, with the support, you know, going to 12 step meetings, but also there was a group called this, the Harvard self-help group. And that group taught me things about like addiction and what we call recovery based training in terms of pre-planning. Okay. What happens when, when you, when you get uh, um, triggered to use or how do you go back to getting back into a normal flow of life, you know, for some, some folks, cause I had a job, I didn't lose it, but some folks it had to do with teaching them just how to be a human being and how to present oneself in a way that we would be able to blend in and not stand out. So when I think about mental health, uh, that was really important for me to be able to have that support, you know, the, my therapist, but also all of the other folks and other groups that I was engaged in that helped me. And then especially uh, the HMO that I was in that had a cutting edge program called stress management. And we used to have to do, we'd have to spit and, you know, and pee in a cup and they would do pre and post testing and whatnot. But it was really about teaching us how to take responsibility for ourselves and to be partners in our healthcare. So a lifestyle change Mm -hmm. was a big part of that. And the main focus has been on prevention and maintenance and wellness. And so that's the process that I came, uh, I came into. I was fortunate enough to be around folks where I could organize and structure uh, my recovery or my path forward in ways that allowed me to look at the body and the mind not being separate, but being being connected and then bringing me to psychology and philosophy and and um, and the practice, the meditation, you know, the teachings of the Buddha, uh, just insight meditation specifically. And so it, it just came together beautifully and it was really helpful because it was about me learning about myself, to know myself, to know that the mind and body are connected and how do I need to relate to experience in a way that's authentic to, to what I'm, or who I'm trying to be or what I'm trying to do. And so it was really powerful. This is really powerful to really have the awareness uh, to be able to make uh, choices, to be able to create space between stimulus and response. And in that space, being willing to choose based on my values, based on who I say I want to be and what I say Mm. I want to do. So I've read a lot. So part of it is like I'm coming up on, I think, I just celebrated that. Well, I didn't celebrate it, but 38 years and nine months I've been sober. Wow. And I've averaged over a book a week during that time. And one of the things I was thinking about reflecting on, of course, my book Unlocked, um, Embrace Your your Greatness, Find the Flow, Discover Success. I do a lot of studying about the the individual self, um, about you know, how, how to be more authentic, how to be more present 
for life. And I was reading a book, Man for Himself. I was rereading it. I, I read books multiple times. So this book I probably read at least 12 times. Mm. But he talks about uh, having frames of orientation and devotion for having a, a place from which we can observe experience, but what are we devoted to? And he talks about this idea, and this is what I believe, and this is what I've been doing, but he puts it in a really good frame. He says, the idea is to be mature, rational, and productive. And so his theory of you, you love what you labor for, you labor for what you love in his book, The Art of Loving. And he said, we are as healthy as we are active. And so that's that's the foundation of what I've been doing. And I've been moving towards higher and higher levels of wellness. It's, it's like, I, I can't, I can't, I got to keep making those wellness deposits. I got to keep <laughs> prevention and maintenance and actually being proactive to actually expanding my capacity uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. It's really great. You know, one of the harmful myths about challenges to mental health is that they're rare, which can lead to a lack of education or understanding about them. And they're not so rare. You know, I know a lot of people hear a term like mental illness and think of something dire like one flew over the cuckoo's nest and the extremes of it. And they don't really correlate to any of the experiences they're having maybe today in their own lives. And um, that might also be a contributing factor to this misconception. But some of the latest statistics that I've seen tell us that one in five adults suffer from mental health challenges, which can take many different shapes. It does take many different shapes. Mental health care educators and providers look at mental health on a spectrum mm -hmm. instead of a binary thing that you have or you don't have. So that means mental health and mental health challenges waxes and wane in your life. And sometimes those challenges present in a mild form and other times they just take over your life. And uh, isn't that what you've witnessed? Yes, it's interesting because we talk about uh, depression and anxiety. And when you really think about it, um, when, as I started having more freedom and started being able to, because I had self-awareness and self-regulated thought, feelings, behaviors, and that could be something like, you know, living by, you know, certain rules, you know, uh, you know, of morality, what we talk about in the practice of integrity mm -hmm. or, you know, going for, for goodwill instead of ill will. Um, uh, this idea of being generous instead of being greedy, you know, have been uh, challenged by the greed, the hatred and the delusion to actually do the, the opposite of, of those things, seek to understand for the delusion and really understand that. And there's something about this idea on my path that that the more freedom I had, the more I I start I actually went went through this idea of dealing with the fear of death and then the dizziness of freedom, where you know freedom and one side of the coin is freedom, like heads is freedom, but tails is uncertainty, anxiety. And so this is normal anxiety, but if we don't relate to it properly, it, be, it can become debilitating. So Soren Kierkegaard, the uh, existential philosopher, he called it the alarming possibility of being able. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't embrace that and realize that, yeah, we're going to do things, but there's another side to that because now we're in, we're dealing with uncertainty and anxiety and the anxiety, if we relate to it, 
in a way, um, I think Robert May wrote a book called um, uh, The Meaning of Anxiety. And we start to understand that their anxiety is just they're telling us we're out of our comfort zone. And if we can work through it, the only way out is always through use our our rationale and and our you know uh, our ability to seek to understand to be to be in a growth mode or to seek to understand things so that we don't have to have doubt about it because we kind of understand it. So you go through those emotions. So through my recovery, I've, I've been going through when I stopped being a um, substance abuser and started changing. I went through grief. You know, I went through mm-hmm. arguing, denial, anger, depression and acceptance but it was but i knew that and and i had the tools and to look at it and say okay this is happening because i'm changing it's not because i made the wrong choice or that i'm inherently um uh lacking it has more to do with this is the human experience we go through these range of emotions and the idea is how can we experience them embrace them without being identified with them but actually see them as things like everything else. They come and go and they're, they're telling us something about our experience. And my job is to seek to understand that. So you think about the, you know, the, the anger and the depression from recovery. And I've been growing. So it's like, I'm going through another growth sport mm-hmm. and it's painful, <laughs> you know, yeah. but, but I had a context and I had, I had a frame of orientation and my devotion to love, devotion to productivity of, you know, uh, loving everything and helping things grow and seeking to understand that allowed me to be able to look at things in a way where they were, I could see a roadblock and, and it becomes a stepping stone mm-hmm. so like anxiety and whatnot. So those emotions come, but it's really our relationship to them, as you know. Yeah. And so this ability to have a, a, a frame of orientation where we can observe experience uncritically or mindfully, where we just notice things, we're not trying to push anything away or pulling things towards us, but to, ha- to have the power of awareness to just see it and seek to understand it and notice how it impacts us and others. So obviously the the, pro- the teachings of the Buddha is really powerful for being able to take refuge mm-hmm. and, and to have a, a, a orientation which you can observe experience in ways where we can actually cultivate more wisdom more compassion, more love and kindness, more joy, and more equanimity. Yeah, because the we might say conventional uh, misconception about challenges to mental health is that they're a sign of weakness or lack of willpower. And, you know, we've all seen it a lot in, in working with people and probably in ourselves as well. You know, I know you work have worked with a lot of athletes and still some of whom are really world-class athletes. And I'm curious about how much mental health might be part of the conversation in those circles. And I have this clear memory of Naomi Osaka, a well-known tennis player. Yes. Famously withdrew from the French Open in 2021, citing her mental health. Or Michael Phelps is another star athlete who's been public about his mental health and these highly competitive environments. Is it becoming more normal for athletes to talk about these challenges? instead of viewing them as weakness or failure? I would say from the public reporting, yes, because of COVID. COVID was devastating, but it also was, uh, it, it, it kind of, it kind of uh, 
exposed the emperor had no clothes on. You know, the suffering is in your face. You can't avoid it. You're locked down. You're locked up. And, and so there's a willingness to kind of look at it. And in the crisis, we tend to do that. And then the question is, can we sustain that and just realize that 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 yes, we all have these emotions that come. Like if I just talk about anxiety, it's a normal emotion when you're out of your comfort zone. But if we if we don't relate to it in a wholesome way, then it becomes a neurotic and psychotic. Mm-hmm. It can be that way. So yeah, it's just like we put these labels on mental illness. And, and this is the thing. When I work with people, they'd be saying, well, um, you should work with that one because he's got a lot of problems. And I laugh and say, it's not for those who need it. It's for those who want it. And so it's it's really seeing it as as part of being the human experience and that we have an opportunity here to really just learn from it and they grow from it. And if we need to see some, talk to somebody or take some, some uh, pharmaceuticals that support that, then so be it. Uh, but mm-hmm. each person has to figure that out on their own. But this yeah. idea of, you know, when you mention the word mental, it's, it's a negative connotation. But then yeah. again, if you think about our society, it's based on pathology. Yeah. We're really good at what's wrong. We don't really catch people doing something right or focus on, the gospel or the good news. Yeah. Don't do that. And so as a result, why wouldn't we look at any little hiccup as a sign that something's really, really wrong rather than it just being a hiccup and something that we can relate to in a way and it could actually mm-hmm. uh, be be a proximate cause of understanding and 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 uh, wisdom that we need to do that. And so this idea of you know mental illness is is interesting. Um Maybe I'll, I'll get a little bit personal with this. Uh, my sister, Evelina, who passed away a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she had schizophrenia. You know, she would hear voices and she would go through things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we talked about it. And, and, I, and I taught her how to, to be present for the voices and to challenge them. Mm-hmm. And, and, she, and she was able to, because, you know, I got trained as a therapist when I was in graduate school and I did some physical psychotherapy training, but my main thing was in group dynamics and working with, with organizations mm-hmm. and teams. But, but there's ways that just by having a little confidence or just being able to um, just observe things in a, in an uncritical way, it's so powerful. It's so relieving and having that physical space helps us to not react. I, I was just thinking about this today. Uh, Part of the problem is we don't know how to slow down and just think about what we're going to do before we do it instead mm-hmm. of having this idea that we're supposed to know the answer to the question before we even hear the question, whether we pose it or someone else. So it's really this idea of self-compassion, uh, kindness to oneself, just really thinking about, OK, given what's happening, uh, how do I want to show up? What values do I want to express? And and that's we're going inside and being um Authentic. So for me, I had a, I had to come to terms with the idea that I needed to be intellectually stimulated. So mm-hmm. I gave myself permission to read books or to read the paragraph as many times as I needed to until I understood it. And mm-hmm. so, if if we can listen, the heart could tell us. But 
as Ajahn Sumedho said, the idea is not to follow the heart. The idea is to train the heart mm-hmm. so that we can follow it. I'm so glad you used the term relationship because so much in terms of meditation understanding depends on just that. It's not even so much what is arising, although some of the things that arise, thoughts, emotions, can be very, very painful. But it's different than bad yes. you know, or wrong. And, and so how we relate to them is going to say so much about our sense of possibility, our emotional intelligence, our ability to navigate and remember our values and what we really care about. And, you know, we get so down on ourselves so often because of the, the, just the sheer appearance of something. I got sad. I got angry. You know, this came up, whatever it is. And, uh, and there's such a huge difference, as you know very well, between having, say, even a strong, intense emotion come up and getting all wrapped up in it, you know, and taking it to heart and, letting it define yourself and your future and, and uh, choose. It's like the emotion is choosing the action. Yes, this is, it took me many decades to figure this out, (laughs) that my state of mind is really freaking important. If I can be in love and not in fear, then my cognitive functioning, my ability to see clearly, my ability to have some self-regulation or being able to, delay gratification or delay impulsivity and compulsivity to just be able to have that space and just to think about it and then be able to act coming out of a spaciousness, coming out of a a, um, acceptance of Mm -hmm. things as they are and not getting into what it means about who I am or who I'm not. And so it's really, really to me, even after all these years, I feel like I just have to simplify it. It's just the awareness of just being able to see things uncritically from a space, from a place of spaciousness where we can just observe and learn and not really feel like we have to do anything or uh, interpret what's going on before we even let the raw data tell us what it is, let it speak for its own, you know, speak on its own so that we're seeing things in new and fresh ways. And and to me, that's, that's the process. And so just looking at, you know, all of my issues and even when I, when I blow it, so, okay, I'm a mindfulness teacher, a performance expert, and, and I blow a gasket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the idea is, okay, I blew a gasket. So can I, can I, um, can I forgive myself? Can mm-hmm. I be compassionate and then seek to change that behavior? And it's challenging when we have to do it many times yeah. before we actually get it. And sometimes the mindfulness is not quick enough to catch it. But then we, if we can reflect on experience and learn from our mistakes, and then we can go engage in the process where we start to understand and that idea of learning and achievement generates so much enthusiasm, I call it um, energizing enthusiasm, but learning for learning's sake. You, you know, we talk about the autotelic personality when you know, we talk about being in the zone of flow and athletics, uh, but it's everybody to do the thing in and of itself for no reason, but just the reason to really show up and to be fully present and fully um, committed to the unfolding or, or like I said, you know, laboring to actually help it grow, but actually to understand 
what's happening. And so we have that ability to actually see that and, and embrace learning for learning's sake. Or I'm speaking with you, and if I get, can, can I, I'd say real mental health has to do with being able, like, a, you know, optimal mental health is being able to realize that every, ex- every experience is of equal value. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And it's so powerful because it's actually true. You know, it's not just trying yes. to feel better about some terrible situation. It's it's actually true. And it means that um, we can have interest in our experience, even if it's painful. We can forgive ourselves, as you say. Uh, we can have compassion. And that leads, of course, to greater compassion to others, which is a kind of healing process to not feel so alone with whatever we're going through. Yeah, the heart is amazing. And I know you, I mean, learn from you, the metta, and just opening the heart. But, you know, learning the metta opens up the compassion and, and joy and equanimity. I mean, it's all connection, mm-hmm. connected. But, but yeah, just in, in sports, we talk about sometimes having an open heart and open mind. Well, that's a good idea. That's a good yeah, thought. Right. How do you do it? <laughs> you know, especially when you have feeling a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. So, and that's, that's the learning. That's the challenge is how to embrace that and to learn from it and see it as an opportunity, not to see it as um, a curse. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about your new book, Unlocked, Embrace Your Greatness, Find the Flow, Discover Success, which is your second book. And I'd like to know what inspired you to write it in the absence of incessant nudging by me. To write a book? Yes. So it's interesting because the, so first of all, I ended up, this is the first, well, I have a literary agent Mm -hmm. and a friend of mine uh, introduced me to his and the literary agent decided that, you know, I would be a, you know, he wanted to help me just, you know, he, he believed in my teachings and wanted to help me to get out there. And so we, we wrote a proposal and my book proposal is really about, a book about leadership. Mm-hmm. And then when we got, you know, when they embraced it, they said, well, you know, we want you to write about you, about your experience. And to mm-hmm. the degree that you're willing to be vulnerable, we'll talk about it, but we want to know how you unlocked. And it's interesting because what I've found over the years, especially since I, I wrote The Mindful Athlete, Secrets to Pure Performance, and it came out May of 2015, people went from asking me about Kobe and Michael or whatever athlete or whatever elite performer, whether it's a, a person in the business realm or whatever, they started asking me, well, what did you do? Mm-hmm. How did you feel that? And that's very much an existential approach to things that speak from your own experience. And of course, you know, one of the awakening factors, investigation of Dom is we want to be able to get a direct experience of whatever the teaching is. And so when we started talking about it, then I said, okay, so I'm going to talk about, you know, how I, how I unlocked, how I, you know, my process of, of what I've been doing for the last um, almost 40 years. Well, I see these, you know, two parts of this conversation is really uh, leaning on one another because one of the ways that we're really helped in opening to what's difficult, you know, what's challenging is through having some glimmer of that sense of potential. You know, because when we say open, it doesn't mean like succumb. Yes. You know, it, it's a certain kind of opening that has, you know, respect for ourselves, for the process, 
real compassion, a sense of greater balance, all kinds of things are feeding into the way we are learning to relate to what's difficult in our psyche. And at the same time, that that is awfully hard to do without some little flicker of a sense of possibility, like things can be better. Yes. Well, I was relating and thinking, I was reading something and talked about the four messengers that came to the Buddha. Mm-hmm. And I actually had a messenger that showed up at my house on April 1st, 1984. And that was a friend of mine that I used to get high with, and he was sober and clean. And that's when it became uh, the possibility of, oh, I don't have to go to institutions, jails, and death, or I'm going to die. But, oh, here's a way out. Here's the mendicant path or the path of mm-hmm. to freedom. And so you're absolutely right. So having a hope. So it's interesting because I think in a month or so, they'll have the Basketball Hall of Fame and they have it in, I think it's either June or July. I think it's July, something like that. They have it in Springfield, Mass. And and I in the Hall of Fame, the initials are HOF. I mean, H, HOF, right? And so I talk about the Hall of Fame as being hope, optimism, and faith. Mm-hmm. And so having that, that leap, even if it's launching faith, we have to cultivate that ability to trust in our own abilities mm-hmm. and to trust in the lawfulness of the universe or whatever we want to call it. So you're absolutely right. Without that and without people, without me having a message saying, oh, this is possible. And then me doing my investigation and seeing, yes, this is indeed is possible. And I want other people to know that. So. The main reason I wrote the book is because I, several years back, I developed a, a what we call a charter. And so it's kind of like a mission statement. And so my charter is to release the divine spark in each and every human being. I call it the masterpiece. But depending on how you see things and how you language things, that could be Buddha nature, Christ consciousness, divine spark, whatever you want to call it, allness, whatever. and. You know, I took that on as a, a lifelong process to help people release that or unlock that, especially beginning with myself. And then I came up with this idea of the values that are at the heart of who I am, are love, curiosity, truth, integrity, selfless service, courage, compassion. That for which I can be counted on for is to be loving with a warrior spirit, with a serving and compassionate heart. Pursuing excellence and wisdom with grace and ease. Now, the grace and ease came later because I was pursuing excellence, but it wasn't graceful and it wasn't ease. Mm-hmm. But ease, and I realized that that I'm not, and that's when right effort really got me. Where I said, "Oh, you know, really, you know, uh, slow motion gets you there quicker, or slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So to slow down and keep it simple, the more I can make uh, just stay in a moment and do." you know, master the, the the fundamentals, just keep it simple. Then it just opened up a whole new experience for me and things started being effortless or or manifesting because all I had to do is form the intention and then get out of the way and let mm-hmm. whatever I was training express myself. So in sports, it's helpful because you have a beginning, middle, and end. So you can see like a season and then you can evaluate the season. For us in our daily life, we're like running a marathon with no, no clear demarcations of when we're going to stop and measure how we're doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, a lot. Because I'm struck by 
the similarities in your work um, to something that I talked about in my own most recent book, Real Life, a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. Yes. And, you know, as I understand it, a fixed mindset is based on the belief that our, our basic qualities like intelligence or talent are fixed traits. Yes. And, whereas a growth mindset is based on the belief that your basic qualities are things you can cultivate through your own efforts. Is that right? Yeah, that's the linear brain. That's that's the entropy, entropy that they say the universe is winding down rather than the centropy. Mm-hmm. I think is the word of it. Where there's a power node, that the energy doesn't go away; it just changes. That there's a way of even with our thoughts. Some thoughts are energy zapping. Some thoughts are energy enhancing, and so that there is there is a node that we can connect to that allows us to have mm-hmm. access to power. And access to you know energy, so that's that's a different psychology. But when you're talking about the left brain, it's it's linear. One plus one equals two. If it can't measure it, it doesn't exist. Well, we know there's a whole universe, and and I think I read somewhere um, the adaptive unconscious or some place where ninety percent of our experiences are not known to us. It's like a automatic um, neural nets and and networks that are running uh, and ways of being that are happening that we're not aware of. And so if that's the case, then we have to understand that hidden part of us that's running, you know, like the, I talk about it as the draw back the curtain when total draw back the curtain, you see the wizard of Oz there, you know, um, controlling things. So we have that wizard in us and we have to really draw back the curtain and see and, and, actually be more proactive in how we want want the controls to be used, mm-hmm. if, that, if that makes any sense. And so, yeah, so th- this was a labor of love for me. And it's just me experience, sharing my experience, strength, and hope. But it's, it's my commitment to helping everybody be who they really are, because I, I believe we're all, we're all um, unique. Uh, individuals, and of course, we could talk about self and no, no self. But I know this: there's a stream of consciousness that's making decisions, and and that's what I want to focus on, uh, whether we call it uh, whatever. But there's a quote in my book I, I'll read from Joseph Campbell. It says, "This I believe is the great Western truth that each of us is a completely unique creature, and that if we are ever to give any gift to the world, it will have to come out of our own." experience and fulfillment of our own potentialities, not someone else's. And so that's the, the challenge of right effort or anything is every it's an inside job. The person inside has to take responsibility and has the best vantage point to actually be authentic or really uh, honor what what's really there that needs to be expressed. Well, there's so much in what you say because it comes back to how does a person, especially when experiencing a lot of challenges, feel empowered? You know, and some of that I think is really through wisdom. It's understanding, again, you know, what we were talking about earlier. It's about relationship. It's not about trying to yes. eradicate certain things because yes. that's what they think, you know, and then they freak out. I mean, look at me. I've been meditating now like 50 years, you know. Mm-hmm. Nothing would be easier than to say, you've been meditating for 50 years. Why is this still here? You know, but rather than that, to understand that even with the appearance of whatever mind state or emotion uh, that I'm not really in favor of all that much, um, you know, I can be relating to it in a different way. 
neither hopefully getting sucked into it nor pushing it away and being afraid of it. And that's all the difference. And um, without that understanding, it could be a lot harder to have a sense of, of some agency or empowerment. Like I can remember early on in my practice, one of my teachers, this man named Menindra, said to me, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. And it <laughs> felt like almost the first time in my life someone was looking at me as though to say, you know what? You can solve your problem. You can solve the problem of the confusion and the unhappiness that's brought you here to India to begin with. So you can do this. Yes. Well, the relationship is all about the relationships, my relationship with myself, but my relationships with others. I mean, you were one of my messengers. I mean, you were very instrumental in, in allowing me to go from being a yogi uh, to being out in the world and still having a practice and encouraging me to just be myself and to show up. That love and kindness, that compassion. You, you won't, you know, people, when we can do that for each other, mm-hmm. it is a huge boon. You just talked about Menindra, of just put planting that seed. And this is the thing is we can create possibilities for each other that is inclusive. And um, not only, you know, it, it's, it's just, uh, I can't really explain it, but that's where the energy comes from. I, I've had so much support. I didn't do this by myself. Mm-hmm. But because I have support, I want to support others. And so that's the other two reasons why I I wrote the book is because I've learned that if I want to really understand something, I need to teach it. And if I really wanted to keep something, not in the way of keeping it, like hoarding it or being possessive about it, but having access to it, the only way I could do that is to give it away. I love that you're teaching people, a lot of Buddhist philosophy, but through different language. Mm-hmm. And one of those terms you use is a flow state, which yes. I would describe in more Buddhist terms might be like a state of heightened awareness and find the flow is part of the subtitle of your book. So how do you define a flow state? And is that something you found in your meditative life or in your life as an athlete when you were younger? Yeah. Well, actually my first flow state was when I was about nine or 10 or 11, we were playing a, uh, uh, electric football game, a group of us. And I was just, so there was, there was something that was novel, right? It was new. They say the things that help with getting a flow state, novelty, unexpectancy, and complexity. Um, and so for me, it, it's really more about, it, it's, it's like, you know, you're swimming in a stream and the current is going one way. And of course, the way to, depending on the wind blowing and whatnot, and you just find the flow when you get in there. But, but there's a, there's a couple of ways of approaching it. One way is struggling. Struggle is really important. So you struggle, I struggle, I struggle. I take in, um, you know, overload of information, trying to understand using my linear brain, all of that stuff, taking it in. And then at some point, just letting go or releasing or just, you know, stepping back from it. And then so you do something like, you know, taking a walk or you might be taking a shower and then you get the aha moment and then you get into flow. You get in flow where things are happening. You found a, a path where things are just effortlessly happening and you're just making these uh, minute 
uh, decisions, but it's not really you. It's 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 another part. It's the unconscious part of ourselves that knows because it sees though sees things, and we know that we have a pattern detector unconsciously. We learn better unconsciously than we do consciously, mm-hmm. and so it's just letting that greatness within us express itself. So when I embrace my greatness, um, then what happens is I allow it. I trust it. And it knows better than than myself, but I form the intention. This is what I want to do. This is where I want to I want to go. And then I just have to get out of the way and let it happen. So it's almost like I form the intention, I relax, and I allow it to happen. And so this this can happen in real time. So I spend more time in flow now as uh, not being an athlete, but because I'm continuing to challenge myself. I'm living on that edge of you know of my. My challenge is being high and my skills being high because I'm continuing to learn, grow and evolve. You know, I have this, you know, I'm pursuing excellence and wisdom with grace and ease. I have this hunger and thirst for not just knowledge, but just understanding because I want to alleviate the suffering for myself and others. So I have that kind of bodhisattva ideal where when I meditate, when I overcome uh, my addictions or overcome some bad habits, that I share that with the entire universe. They call it morphogenic fields that ripples through eternity. And so it's something about, about understanding that it's not just about me. And, and when I can get beyond the illusion of separateness, then I, I see that I'm the other one. And so for me, I have these uh, ways of being like fine and flow is, is just, it's like complexity. Like I talked about novelty Mm-hmm. Uh, unexpected, not knowing, so that so I can embrace uncertainty, anxiety, and it actually gets me into flow. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know what's happening, but I'm going to show up and make choices and decisions. And a lot of them is having a feedback loop that's that's very um, that's very um, like. So you got to have clear understanding of what it is you're doing and what you're getting. And then making the adjustments or the changes, the adaptation, the you know, regulating what we're doing and how we're seeing things so that we're able to do what we say we're gonna do. So it's it it means that failure, you gotta embrace failure. Although I don't think there's anything such as failure, just feedback, but it's what Churchill said to go from failure to failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. And so when to get into a flow state, there has to be this ability to tolerate. High, uh, well, what we call cognitive dissonance, or, or to be comfortable being uncomfortable, because and we're expanding our limit. We're moving. It's like doing yoga. So, okay, you get to a place where you're just at your limit, and you stay there, and you breathe through it, and then you stretch. You gradually move in increments, and this is the interesting thing from the the, the, the flow genome and the research is saying that we have to experience anxiety. So I think they said anything under 4% of anxiety. So one, two, 3% so that it doesn't overwhelm us that we Mm. can't be present, but anxiety struggle is necessary. Struggle, release flow. Mm -hmm. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is your skills have to be high and and your challenges have to be high and you have to be in the moment and be able to manage distractions and just be really focused on what you're doing. And so that's when I talk about you know, the, con- you know, concentration is not forgetting the moment, not forgetting what you're doing, but it has to be uh, supported by making the right effort. And it has to also be um, 
be supported by faith and insight or having the right information. Mm-hmm. Of course, mindfulness is there. So in my mind, all five of those superpowers are there to be mindful or to be concentrated or to be the devout wisdom or to be um, have faith that those other factors are there. And it's, it's something, it's, it's nonlinear. So one plus one in the nonlinear side, the right brain, because I'm left hand, I'm right handed, mm-hmm. is one plus one equals six. It's not linear, and it's and it's it's like progressions. You know, all of a sudden you have a quantum leap or or something. But it's that the effort, the you know, getting from this idea of getting enough enthusiasm to get beyond lethargy or doubt, and then the persistence, and then with that, then we get to that level of inv- invincibility where we have access to a tremendous energy effort creates energy and so it's it's the struggle and moving through it's making mistakes and learning from them and seeing mistakes as as opportunities that psychology changes everything so now you're you're embracing it and then you get to what i learned when i first came around was this idea of strong self-efficacy belief and what we know about people that have that is that they they set more challenging goals and they um and they have this ability to stick with something, even though there's nothing that's telling them uh, that, that they're going to succeed. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they have these incremental things. So, you know, uh, we'll probably get to it. But my definition of success, I borrowed from this guy, Earl Nightingale, in a book called The Strangest Secret. He said success is a progressive realization of a worthy ideal or goal. So every day you can get one or two percent better. So my my work is with people is, can you be a little bit better today than you were yesterday? You don't have to be a lot. It could be 1%. It could be, you know, a fraction of that, but we're moving. There's a progression. We're moving in the right direction. And sometimes we're still before we make a move, but we're in the process. We're not quitting. We're persistent. We have this ability to have that, that steady application of balanced energy, the right effort. It's like, we just keep going. Once again, I come up with slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And and that's that's what I'm what I'm talking about. So being in flow is an amazing feeling, but it's like if greed gets in the way or fear gets in the way, it'll cut, knock you out of flow, or you won't be able to get there. So it's something that you have to intend, but allow it to happen. If you try to get in the flow, you won't get into it. But if you just do the the things and understand the conditions in which flow manifests, then that's what we're doing. So that balance of wanting it but not trying too hard the right effort again and just just keep adjusting how we're applying our energy and and what and adjusting to what's happening because that feedback loop has to be quick so we see something and in the scene we make the change without having to sometimes we have to reflect on it but when we get in the flow we just trust the process and because we're not there there's no self-consciousness it's just it's happening you know it's like um it's like you do something and you're not there. It's happening. Mm-hmm. It has an effortless quality to it. But you intended it. But you, but it's happening based on on the awareness of what's happening and then reading the situation and then choosing within the hair's breadth of seeing and behaving, arising at the same time. But it's something about coming out of the silence. There's a creativity and there's a wisdom that manifests itself. Mm-hmm. 
that when we can be still and know, when we can practice just being present and looking and seeing things or doing things autotelically for the the activity itself being the reason for doing it and being in the moment and 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 just being fully expressed. That is that's what it's about. So we can make it complicated, but it really comes down to just allowing, embracing each unfold unfolding moment and reading it, letting it speak to us in a way where we we understand the way forward. There's just something that comes out of that and our creativity. We're very creative and we have this unlimited potential that that we have that we can access and develop, but only we can develop it. That's the second part of it. It's an inside job. And the third thing is to the degree that we develop it, that's going to create the kind of life we live. We can live more fully, more creatively, more compassionately, and more wisely by understanding that we have this, this, this potential inside of us that needs to be developed and accessed. And, but you won't, I couldn't do it unless I had a want to. Mm-hmm. Unless I, and for me, it's, it's, like my first book, it took me 20 years to write it. And the reason I wrote it was because I, I felt I could help people. And it's the same with this book. Okay, I can help people. So I can do it for somebody else, mm-hmm. not necessarily for myself. But when I do it for somebody else, I'm also doing it for myself. It, it, you know, what I talk about my this, this frame of orientation and devotion, this consciousness that's making choices. Wow, it's fantastic because failure is such a rich topic, you know, and this idea that we failed instead of we're growing. And I think uh, to have that sense of transformation and possibility is so, it's so very important. And also just speaking of words and redeeming words and remembering suddenly when your first book came out and we were doing some program together in New York City and I turned to you and I said, in your work in in the sports world, do you use the the term mindfulness or meditation? And and you said something like, "Well, now I can because there's been all this research." And I said, "Do you use a word like compassion?" And you said, "That's going a little far." <laughs> and I said, "Well, what do you say?" Because I knew you must talk about the quality, yeah. if not the word. So I said, well, "What do you say?" And you said, "I tell people." Don't be hating. Stop hating <laughs> on yourself. Stop hating on others. Yes. Yes. You know, yes, just something we talked about um, Phil Jackson's philosophy of people working as part of a team, you know, which instead of feeling just the individual brilliance of someone who was important, you have to start thinking about others. And that brought up a feeling of compassion. Yes. We used to call, we call it the one breath, one mind. Mm-hmm. This is like everybody's, you know, five fingers of the hand, or the thumb and the fingers are relating together. But yeah, it, it's funny because it's, 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 it's strange. But when I come up with these, you know, when I ask these questions, when, cause I'm coming out as silence and stillness, I'm always fascinated at the answers that come up. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's pretty good. And when I write stuff or when I speak and I'm in flow, I listen to it and say, oh, that's pretty good. Where'd that come from? <laughs> but it's it's being in that creative energy. It's just allowing, you know, my 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 greatness, the greatness within, not my greatness, but mm-hmm. the greatness to send that we all have that potential. You know, a human birth is very precious. 
that I'm able to access that energy, that, that, that wisdom and that creativity comes out of that, uh, just being able to, to just be still and have any intention and then seeing what happens. And that, that unexpectedness, I think that's one of the things this guy, uh, Stephen Kotler wrote a book called the impossible something or other, but I've been listening to it more lately and he talks about flow and he, and he's, so I'm getting the language from other people, but you're right. I speak a language that I know they can hear, but it's meeting them where they are and communicating with them in ways, you know, of course, uh, uh, the Buddha and Jesus, they talked in parables and, and what I learned from what I heard about, um, the teachings of Jesus, he said, before you go, when you go before council to have like little bullet points and then let the spirit move you. Mm-hmm. And, and the Buddha would speak in a language that people could hear because he would relate. If you're talking to somebody who's a carpenter, he's going to use that language. And so that's, what's been the challenge has been exciting. And, 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 and uh, how I'm going to say energizing for me to figure out how to communicate with people where they are. And a lot of that is kind of unconscious, just me seeking to understand and just listening and paying attention and being clear about what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Clarity of goals is so important for flow as to be clear and to know what the essentials are. You got to put in a lot of work. You got to do a lot of the effort and the understanding and the repetition that you need to do error correction you need to do so that you have an understanding of what the essentials are in the process that you're that we're in so that we can know what changes we need to make and some of that is learning on the fly mm-hmm. and then going back and then because whatever happens i look at it this way it's a feedback loop if i when i make mistakes or something doesn't happen then it means i have to go back and learn and practice that until i can do it mm-hmm. So the performance has a lot to do. The performance has a lot to do with the learning and practicing, and the preparation we've done before the event or before the encounter. So when we encounter things for for the first time, we can't expect ourselves to know, but we can figure it out by by uh, not getting what we want and then trying to ascertain what do we need to change. That's where the self regulation, the self regulated thoughts, feelings, and behavior. But we have this ability to step back and observe ourselves in ways where we can reflect and we can learn. And that's the biggest thing I've been thinking about today is this idea of slowing down and just really looking at things from a perspective of seeking to understand rather than to try to impose what what theory or, or what technique I have onto it, but just really being open. And that takes a certain level of vulnerability to, to be influenced. Mm-hmm. So you have a section of the book about abiding in love. What role does love play in all of this? And what does growth look like when we don't have the force of love behind it? Yeah, well, um, I I look at it from the idea of love is all you need. Love is is the opposite of of fear. And so there's an ability to learn, there's ability to be open even when we close down and we can see we're closing down on how to open it. Love mm-hmm. has everything to do with it. And it's interesting. I spoke on two podcasts and I didn't know it, but I, you know, I was listening to it 
and they ask me three things that I know for sure or something like that. And in both podcasts, I said that the only time we have is now. The only person you could be is yourself. And Kierkegaard talks about the, one of the most devastating forms of despair is not being ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing I said is all you need is love. And so when I talk about the art of loving or, you know, this idea of if I want, if I love something, I make it grow. And so I have to be able to care for it, to respond to the needs and what needs to be done mm-hmm. and respect this respect the, the person, place or thing as they are, not as I would like them to be. And then knowing. So I have to know who they are. So I know how to care for them, how to respond to them, mm-hmm. how to respect them. And so that's what I look at. So I start with myself, but it's really more about seeking to understand. So I'm pursuing excellence and wisdom with grace and ease. So it's not just excellence, but wisdom. Mm-hmm. And, and seeking that and understanding it, that uh, when I understand it, then I can, I can relate to it. I can align myself with how things are versus align myself with how things should be. Now, there is a component of of visualizing and trying to create a new possibility. That's different than what I'm talking about. But initially, we have to say yes to whatever is there. We have to say yes to it and generate the hope, optimism, and faith, and then make a choice on how we're going to relate to it in a way that empowers, motivates, inspires us, but also leads to uh, a reduction of suffering or the elimination mm-hmm. of suffering. That's great. So before we uh, depart from one another today, I'm wondering if you could lead us all in a practice of some kind. Yes. So thank you for the opportunity to do that. And so what I liked it, and like I said, I got a little bit of it from you from my work together because, you know, I do pay attention. <laughs> uh, so... The idea is, I'm assuming some people might be driving and doing other things, so I don't encourage you to do this. But if you're driving, you're going to actually just be aware of your body in a seated posture. And we want to begin by taking a few deeper in and out breaths. And we want to use the belly breathing. So the belly is expanding. So we're using a full capacity of our lungs. So it's just this idea of a felt sense of sitting. So we're, we're observing our experience from the inside out, not from the outside in. Just noticing that there's certain parts of the body that are making contact with the surfaces and just breathing in and expanding and allowing the breath sensations to expand, to envelop the entire body, just like the skin. So all the way down to the fingers and thumbs, uh, to the toes and the feet, the ears, up to the head, neck, so that we're sitting and breathing and we can feel the sensation of breathing in while sitting and breathing out while sitting. And so when the mind gets distracted or or involved in something else, just by thinking about the body and thinking about the breath, the attention comes there. Like if I say, think about your right palm, the attention goes there. So once the attention is with the body and the breath, then it's a matter of dropping down below the concept of a body and just noticing the sensations, the bare sensations that are present in this moment as we breathe in and encouraging us to breathe through the nose unless we have uh, allergies and we have to breathe through the mouth, but we just want to breathe through the nose, breathing in, experiencing the entire body, and then breathing out, experiencing the entire body. So it's a 
the, the area of awareness is envelops the entire body. So it's, it's a broad, it's not like focus on the tip of the nose or some specific spot. It's just, just being aware of the body as a whole. And you will notice that there's some places where you can have more sensation or it's more vivid. In some places may not have any, may not even be able to register anything. It's not so important. What's important is just resting in the breath, resting in the body. And we do that by just being aware of breathing while we're breathing. The mind goes somewhere else and just thinking about the breath of the body. Then you pick up the breath wherever it is. And sometimes we could use skillful means when you don't know, you just breathe all the way out. Then you can breathe in. Or if you breathe all the way in, then you can breathe out. So there's ways of knowing it. But whether you make contact or not, it's just the intention and the directing attention or direct, uh, what I call it, direct thought, just directed on the body, just sitting and breathing and knowing it. So we're in a seated posture, but this could happen even with our eyes open. Even if we're driving or doing something, we could just feel the felt sense of the body as we're driving, feeling the road, but just being in touch with the breath, noticing that we're breathing in and we're breathing out. So we'll take a few more rounds of just sitting and breathing and knowing it. And it's helpful. I didn't do it this time, but it's helpful before we begin this process is to generate some positive feelings, some hope, optimism, some faith, or just smiling and just anticipating that this is a this is an act of self-love to actually allow ourselves to experience uh, just being with ourselves. And I'll offer the image of if I take a pebble or a rock and I drop it into a body of water, what's actually happening, us being the rock, is we're stopping, we're dropping, and as we drop, we're calming, and then we are resting on that on that the body of water, the, the bottom of that body of water. And the resting allows us to heal and to recover. And so it's not something we do. It's something that happens just by stopping and dropping, in this case, dropping into the body and the breath. And just by doing that, there's a calming that happens. And when we're calm, we can rest. And when we can rest, we can heal and we can recover. We need to do renewal. We expend a lot of energy. We have to do the renewal. So that's the imagery I'd like to offer in this process of just sitting and breathing and knowing it, by doing that, we're stopping, dropping, calming, resting, healing, recovering. And even though you might say, well, it's nothing to heal from, that's not the point. The point is to give ourselves this ability to recover, to renew, and to maybe heal from things we don't even know we need to heal from. It could be just to have some, some stillness and some spaciousness in the middle of our busy lives. So when you're ready, just breathing in, experiencing the entire body. And as we breathe out, letting go of the body, letting go of the breath. And if you close your eyes, just opening, just uh, slowly opening your eyes. And thank you for indulging me with this, but this is a really good thing that we can do, even if we just do it for a moment or two, if we're walking, standing, lying down, we have access 
to this ability to just be aware of the body being in a certain posture and that breathing is happening. And that's it. Thank you so much. Thank you uh, for the practice. Thank you so much for being here today. And it's always quite wonderful to spend time with you. And again, big congratulations on the new book. Thank you. So uh, people probably know they can go to my website, georgemurphy.com, to get a copy, or you can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble and some of the other places mm-hmm. where it's sold. And uh, yes, uh, may you... May you experience moments of being unlocked and being at ease and and at peace. Hey folks, thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about George's work or get a copy of his new book, Unlocked, you can visit George Mumford. Dot com or find him on social. And before you go, take some time to check out our resource list for mental health that are in today's show notes. If you'd like to learn more about Sharon's upcoming online events or her new book, Real Life, really all things Sharon, you can visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. <laughs>